Hello, and welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. I'm Rich Verma. And I'm Nirav Patel, president and co-founder of the Asia Group, and I'm stepping in for Kurt Campbell today. We're pleased to be joined by Ambassador Pham Quang Bing, former Vietnamese ambassador to the United States and a senior advisor here at the Asia Group. Ambassador Ving has had a distinguished career, uh, almost 38 years in the Vietnamese Foreign Service, and he's had extensive experience on all facets of Vietnam's engagements, not only with countries in Asia, throughout Europe, but also, most importantly, for the purposes of this conversation, he was the Vietnamese ambassador to the United States, where he served with distinction and really was a central figure in thinking about how to further strengthen the comprehensive partnership between our two countries. And as an aside, he also proved to be one of the most uh, difficult uh, negotiators to work with, even in the moonlight of Bali, as he uh, continued to interests before a summit meeting with President Obama. And he's currently joining us today from Hanoi, Vietnam. So Ambassador Ving, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Ambassador, maybe I could just kick it off and, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about your career, how you ended up as ambassador. I know a lot went before that. You have a military service as well. Just give us a sense about where you're from and, and how, you, how you got started. Actually, I joined the University of Foreign Affairs back in 1975 when the war stopped. And it was a, a really different time as from this one. So I, I studied in the university for five years and I worked more with multilateral issues, including the United Nations. But after the uh, universities, when I joined the foreign ministry for a few months, and it was a war up north in Vietnam, and uh, I was recruited to be uh, military officers over there. I served for two years and ne never fought, but it's really an experience in, in the military. But later on, uh, I worked for 27 years or so with United Nations issues, what we call in the foreign ministry is the International Organizations Department. But later on, I engaged too, uh, too much also on ASEAN, the Southeast Asian associations. And then I had a lot of chances working with, with our colleagues from, from the U.S. But there are the one thing that I want to tell you is that during my time working with the United Nations, I had two postings in, in New York. And also my first experience abroad and first experience of the U.S., we saw how difficult our relationship were by then. And I also saw the progress of our relations later on. Now, back in uh, 2014, I applied for the job as ambassador of Vietnam to the U.S. And it was a great time that the prime minister and the foreign minister accept my application. So I was very much honored to serve as an ambassador of Vietnam to the U.S., the fifth ambassador of Vietnam to the U.S. from November 2014 to June or July 2018. It was quite an, an interesting time with two presidencies from President Obama to President Trump. But I got a lot of friends before that. So I, I was a mid-friends from both sides of the, of the Democrat parties and also the Republican party. So this was great experience. I had two presidents visiting Vietnam 
during my term also. That was way honor. Thank you very much. That's amazing. I, I know how much work those visits generate, but they're also really important for the relationship. Uh, I just want to ask one more question, then I'll turn it over to, to Narav. But Ambassador, you mentioned the war ending in 1975, and you mentioned your own military service. I wonder if you could just take us back to some of those days and how difficult a time that was during the conflict, some of your perceptions, early perceptions of the United States because of the conflict, because of the war, and then how that changed over over many years. And, and just did you ever predict that you could end up as the ambassador here in Washington? Yes, yes. I was a small kid during the war, uh, by the way, in Vietnam of uh, 10 to 11 years or, or some sort of that. And I was in the north of Vietnam. So my very often experience is a bombing and rocketing uh, from the sky to down to the land and the earth. My family were evacuated out of Hanoi. I was in Hanoi. So were my parents and, uh, and our family were evacuated. But they were separated. My father to one province and my mother to one province. They have three kids and the kids has been separated also. So the experience was most about the bombing. So every time when we have temporary stop of the bombing is the most interesting time that we have as a kid. So, but later on, when I had the first posting in New York from, from 1987 to 1990, I got a lot of friends from, from the U.S., including the veterans, and including so-and-so people who demonstrated against the war. So I understand that uh, there are policies and there are wars and there are sufferings, but also there are human feelings and uh, sympathies between the peoples of the two sides. And starting from there, after in my second term in, in New York uh, was from... 1996 to 1999 and that was a time when we were discussing on how to improve or normalize and improve our relations so that was great but certainly my posting as ambassador to washington dc was greatest time of my career as a diplomat mm -hmm. that's great that's great narab over to you yeah and i think ambassador that's um you know a really important point of context which is that Many times when an American visits Vietnam for the first time, it's almost as if today the memories and the tragedies of the war are not really well understood. And to think how far the relationship has progressed since normalization is, is an extremely difficult thing to wrap your hands around considering the legacies of the war, as you've noted, are uh, so front and near to, to many people in Vietnam, particularly of uh, your generation. But Maybe I can ask two questions, Ambassador. One is what your fondest memory was as ambassador to the United States. But the second one is really the future of Vietnam, where there's an entire generation of Vietnamese that were born after the war that have seen Vietnam develop economically and really become a key partner, uh, not only to the United States, but many countries in the world. So it'd be great to hear from you in terms of what energizes you now as you see the youth of your country uh, charting a new course for your country and its peoples? Actually, we, we see a lot of changes and transformations in both Vietnam and also in the relationship between Vietnam and the U.S. 
First, in terms of policy, I think it had been great efforts on both sides that we can come overcome the hurdles of in our relations. First, I think we have to overcome the the gap between us because of of the war. And so, the question of uh, of working together on the world legal issues has been very much an issue here. Vietnam has been actively working with the U.S. on the MIA issue, and also. The U.S. has been helping Vietnam on clearance of landmine and dioxin, and all these things has been very much good. But people-to-people exchange is also a very important one. I still remember back in late 1970s and early 1980s when the veteran Viet vets coming back to Vietnam to the battlefields that they were serving before, but with an open heart and. Uh, they they have an uh, an expectation that there will be uh, some kind of hatred uh, that that will be uh, given to them from the Vietnamese side, but very 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 differently that the the veterans from both sides when they pointed guns to each other during the time of war now they shook hands and they talk about the experience of the war uh, with an open heart and they have been the bridge of, of, of friendship and, and think the bridge of the healing. And nowadays when we talk about the young people in Vietnam, certainly Vietnam has changed a lot, especially re- during the last 30 years of renovation and reform. We opening up our, uh, our economy first and then we opening up uh, our uh, system so that we can have relations with all countries of the world and integrated ourselves into the global economy and uh, global world. So that was the experience of the young people when they grow up and uh, they they learn more from the world. Uh, during our time, it's more controlled and uh, it's very hard to know everything from the world. Now they have the internet, they are exposed to uh, international environment. But one thing I must tell you is that uh, Young people in Vietnam very much love to go to the U.S. for studies. And nowadays we have about 30,000 or something uh, students uh, studying here and there in different universities in the U.S. And they bring back the knowledge and the way of uh, management, especially in economic and business management. So the young people, they are very, very hardworking and looking for uh, high standard education and they look very much forward to to have a chance in the U.S. and and and, and Europe, for example. And one thing is that the, they they are very intelligent and they want to work for the country in their own different way, especially in the private sector. They are working very hard and try to be innovative and uh, to be leading in something as what they say. We in the past we are told to be doing this or to be doing that, but the young people nowadays, they are very on themselves in, in, in working innovatively. That's a very promising picture of the future, and I, I really like what you said about the students and their interest in the United States. I will tell you a lot of American universities have interest in Vietnam as well and have set up research and, and joint 
uh, kind of R&D with Vietnam partners as well. So I, th- I think that's very, um, very exciting and bodes well for our future cooperation. Mm-hmm. I wanted to shift subjects a bit, Ambassador, if we can. One of the things we've been witnessing here in the United States is really kind of severe increasing tensions between the U.S. and China at really all levels, uh, economically, militarily, strategic competition. And I just wonder if you could say a little bit about what that means from your vantage point where, where you sit and how people in Vietnam are thinking about some of the ramifications, not only geopolitically, but there's also an economic component as companies look to diversify away from from China. Is Vietnam poised to take advantage of that? One first thing I must say is that both the U.S. and China are very much important partners of Vietnam and for this region in in Southeast Asia as well. So for us, Vietnam, we want to be uh, having good relations with both countries. We are following uh, with very closely the tensions and the competitions between the U.S. and, and China. But we also see that uh, we still have good chances to have a good relations with both the U.S. and China. Now, one thing, we don't want to be forced to take sides. And I don't, to me uh, and many people, many other people in Vietnam don't see that we are being forced to take sides. We have been talking with the U.S. And the U.S. said they compete with China strategically in everything. They want to have a rule-based order here and there, but they are not forcing countries like Vietnam or countries in ASEAN to take sides. So that's very much good policy from the U.S. that we think. And point number two, whatever you are competing with each other, let's give some room for the smaller countries like Vietnam and other countries in Southeast Asia to have a voice. And I see that the U.S. is considering ASEAN as an important partner in the region and working with each member of, of ASEAN as well. So that's a good point also. And point number three is that when you are talking about Indo-Pacific uh, region, you are talking about rule-based order region, and that is also good. So a lot of things we can share together. We are talking about not taking sides and many fears here in the region that we may be uh, seeing at a time when tensions are going further and further than we are forced to take sides. But I think uh, those concerns are too premature and early because sometimes we have to take sides because of the rule of law and because of the benefits and the legitimate interests of the country's concerned. For example, let me take an, expand, an example. For example, about trade. If we want to be good, partner with here and there, and we have to fight the all the... Uh, bad things about trade, that, that is also. And if we want to choose for ourselves high standard ones, then we, ha- we, are, we, are, we are choosing the products and the quality of the products and service rather than we are, ch- we are choosing uh, between the US or China. So let, let's presume that way that we are working in partnership with both countries, but we have to work for ourselves in a, a sustainable way for our economy in the rule-based order for our security. So, for example, recently the U.S. has a lot of statements on the South China Sea also, and the U.S. said, we 
are not supporting might is right, and we are supporting rule based order, freedom of navigation, peace, and maritime security. So that's great things that we share. We share with with you, and I think we not only share with you bilaterally, but also in the context of meetings of ASEAN, and also in front of other partners also. So let's work that way, and I think that would be good. That's really helpful context. Just one more on this, and then I'll, I'll turn back over to Narav. But Ambassador, Vietnam has been very, I think, aggressive and opportunistic and working very hard to attract investment, production, supply, manufacturing, not only away from China, but really uh, from across Asia. I think you're really putting on quite a demonstration of what you can do there in Vietnam, and you've improved the ease of doing business, a lot of other factors. I mean, that seems to be a very advanced, sophisticated effort to attract more investment, more multinationals into, into Vietnam. Everyone wants to be prosperous and everyone tries to take opportunities for the development of the country. That's true. But sometimes opportunity costs also. And so I think for us, Vietnam, we are, we are looking at the world and we see there are shifts in the supply chains and shift of productions and also diversion of, of capital. So this is a chance for us to work with ourselves in preparing for whether we have an environment attractive to uh, foreign investors or not. So we, we, we worked hard before uh, with our reform, but during this time of the years, we have to work hard further also. So I think a lot of uh, changes and adjustment in the supply chain and production base, not only the shifting of supply chains from China, but also the natural movement of supply chains where uh, multilateral company try to find environment for uh, better benefits of themselves. So, and also there are new creation of new supply chains through different trade and uh, and investment initiatives, including the Indo-Pacific Initiative. So we are working very much hard in order to prepare ourselves first on the framework, on the legal and policy framework, how to attract people. Second, the uh, Certainly on infrastructure, we try to improve the, the, the infrastructure also. Third, but which is very much difficult also about the labor force. So we try. And one thing is that even within the, uh, this region of Southeast Asia, we are competing among ourselves to have foreign investment and FDI as well. So we need to work hard. Well, Ambassador, it's a very, as, as Rich noted, the vision and the ability to execute upon that is something that um, has captured attention of uh, many American multinationals. And, and we're hopefully optimistic that we'll continue to see those decisions accelerate toward countries like Vietnam that have really created more of an enabling environment. Um, but one of the things that I was reflecting on during this conversation is how present Vietnam is in the United States in our culture. And one example really relates to some of the COVID-related policies that Vietnam has implemented. And, and my children go to a small school here in McLean, Virginia. And when we were asking their teachers about how the school will reopen, 
the teachers said, we've studied many models. We've studied Sweden, studied Australia. And then they said, the one model that's interesting to us is Vietnam. And it was amazing because in the world that we live in, the degree of focus that we have uh, placed in terms of studying you know, other countries' responses is a really um, important uh, effort. But I wanted to first congratulate Vietnam for its efforts, but give us a sense, Ambassador, of some of the policies that Vietnam is now taking as it's opened up its economy to ensure that you can both manage and contain inevitable outbreaks but also ensure that the country moves forward. Uh, Certainly, I I need to elaborate a little bit on how we manage the COVID in the first place. Everyone has to close the borders and we we do the same and we check every people in with 14 days quarantine. The one thing is that we try to have a focused testing. That is, we identify vulnerable groups and then we test them because we do not have the capacity to test everybody. So that, that's one of the things. So for the time being, about nearly 70 days, we do not have community-based transmission. So that's very much good. Now, on opening up, one thing is that we have a double task here, both to contain the pandemic, but at the same time, gradually opening up our economy and our country. So for the time being, we just open ourselves internally so everything is open, reopen for economic activities, creation and transportation and everything. We have been discussing on the plan for opening up with for foreign partners and foreign countries. The one thing is that we try to identify countries that have been able to manage the pandemic and then have kind of arrangement for green corridors that people are coming in with a test, but not, and maybe assigned to certain areas of uh, in Vietnam without having 14 days quarantine. That, that is one thing, but I, I'm not quite sure that how, how much more time we will need to have a normal commercial, international commercial flights for now, but we are opening up ourselves to foreign countries in a very uh, cautious and in a very gradual manner. So for the time being, if we can identify and working on a bilateral basis, countries that are safe coming to Vietnam and they think that Vietnam is safe for the people from Vietnam to go to their countries, then we have an arrangement for that. As I mentioned earlier, if foreigners come to Vietnam, there will be designated areas that they first can, can go there and chat and talk and work before they can go to other provinces. That's one way. And there will be also about uh, plans for green corridors so that we can arrange for countries that we have bilateral agreement or arrangements for coming in and out. We have been uh, talking about reopening of international flights, but we are very much cautious the uh, Vietnam airline has been submitting a plan for July, but I don't think that the government will uh, allow July yet, uh, yet. So it'll be a little bit later on when uh, they have to, to look. They are very much cautious about the second wave of COVID. So that's, that is why uh, the government is very much cautious on, on this issue. But they very much need 
to a time that they can reopen the country and reopen the key economy because the economy and the companies in Vietnam are hit hard by, by, by the pandemic as well. And they need foreign investment, they need supply chains, and also they need FDI very much. Well, Ambassador, really helpful overview of how Vietnam has not only tackled phase one of COVID, but is taking some real significant proactive steps as we think about the fall. And of course, uh, hopefully there are uh, folks in the U.S. who are watching intensively for lessons learned to model some of these efforts to support our own domestic recovery in the United States. I'll turn it over to Rich now, Ambassador, but I wanted to you know, really thank you for taking time out of your night. I'm optimistic and I'm hopeful that in 25 years from now, uh, the nature of our relationship is even deeper, uh, more integrated. And I personally want to thank you as a friend and as a colleague for the work that you have done to create a foundation for this relationship on our 25th anniversary of normalization that hopefully uh, will continue to stand the test of time. So thank you and uh, good night. Hey, thank you, Nira. Certainly when I mentioned earlier that uh, my job as ambassador uh, was very much facilitated because of friends like you. You have been helping us a lot. Thank you. Yeah, Ambassador, uh, thank you so much for being with us. And um, what you said about, you know, the soldiers being the bridge to to normalization of ties and how the they put down their arms and, and shook hands. And, and the, we certainly saw that with Senator McCain and Senator Kerry and others who, who really worked hard and President Obama. And, and it's been bipartisan, as you as you noted. So uh, I'm so happy to hear of, of this kind of continued upward trajectory in, in relation. And, and thank you for your service and everything that you've done. Thank you. And thank you to, uh, to all of our listeners. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'd also like to mention that you can access the full video of this recorded conversation with the ambassador online on our website at theasiagroup.com, and you can download it from all the regular uh, podcast platforms. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you next time. Thank you, Ambassador. Thank you, Narav. Thank you very much. The same to you. And thank you for this chance. <laughs>